everyone and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Journey and I am joined here today by the lovely Rebecca and Nicole. This week, Rebecca will be telling us all about the case of Alexander Litvinenko. And Nicole will be educating us on the science of radiation poisoning and how it played an instrumental role in this case. Um, There's actually no listener's discretion advised. Um, However, death is still involved. So if that bothers you, don't listen to this one. Um, yeah, and so with that, I'll pass it over to Rebecca to tell us all about who Alexander Litvenko was and how he got poisoned. All right. Thank you, Journey. Um, I would just like to preface this by saying I find this case very, very interesting. So this might be a little bit of a long one because he had quite an interesting history, uh, pretty much from the time he graduated school up until his death in 2006. Um, And also just one more thing that I wanted to say is that I was finding a lot of conflicting information online regarding like his life and the order of what stuff happened. Um, But there was a very detailed public inquiry into his death uh, in the years after it in the UK. So I felt like this was probably going to be the most reputable source for this information as opposed to news outlets. So most of the information that I'm sharing today is going to be from the public inquiry that happened. So to get started, Alexander Litvinenko was born in Voronezh, Russia, and I'm Going to do my very best to pronounce everything correctly, but these are a lot of Russian names and towns, so I apologize in advance if I mess one up. Um, So he was born in Voronezh, Russia on December 4th of 1962. His parents were divorced when he was a very young boy, and as a result, he spent his childhood living between his father and father's parents' house in Nelchik, uh, his mother's house in Moscow, as well as living with his aunt in uh, Morozovsk for a period of time. When he was 12, he went to live with his grandparents in Nalchik at the foothills of the Caucasus Mountains, and this is pretty much where he lived until he moved out as an adult, was with his grandparents. So Litvinenko also had one stepsister from his mom's side and three stepbrothers from his father's, uh, and one of his brothers did stay very relevant in his life and very close to him until his death. So Litvinenko graduated high school in 1980 when he was 17, And he did apply, but was not accepted to a university program. Because he was not accepted, he chose that he was going to do his required military service at age of 18, uh, and then later applied to military college. Because in uh, countries such as Russia, they do have required military service at some point in your life. But I believe you can kind of choose when to take it. Uh, And he just thought he should get it out of the way, do it once he's turned 18. So Litvinenko did his year of military service with the internal troops of the Ministry of Internal Affairs of the Russian Federation as a private, which is the lowest rank. Um, And then he enrolled in a training center for this organization uh, just a year later. So it was also found around this time that Litvinenko met and married his first wife, Natalia. So I believe he was only about 20. She was 19. Um, so Litvinenko attended this school for five years, and when he graduated in 1985, he had graduated as a lieutenant, and he then went on to serve uh, in the D- 
Division of the Forces of the Interior Ministry, um, which I apologize, I cannot pronounce the town that this division was in. Um, but basically he went on to work for the interior ministry again as a higher rank, uh, for three years until 1988, when he was recruited to the committee for state security, which to us is more known as the KGB, uh, in 1988. And in 1985 as well, he and Natalia welcomed their first child who they had named after him. So Alexander Litvinenko. When he was working with the KGB, he underwent intelligence training at their facility in Siberia before he was posted to their headquarters in Moscow in 1991. In the same year, he and Natalia had their second child, and she was a little girl named Sonia. So when when Litvinenko was stationed in Moscow, he was assigned to the Economic Security and Organized Crime Unit of the KGB, Uh, However, in 1991, the KGB was dismantled and various organizations took the responsibility for security and intelligence until 1995 when the Federal Security Service, or the FSB, was created. And during this weird kind of limbo period of Russia's internal security, Litvinenko did work for all of the organizations that oversaw it until the FSB was established, and then he transferred to their organization. So during his time working for the organized crime unit, uh, Litvinenko began investigating a group that was based in St. Petersburg called the Tambov Criminal Group. Litvinenko, while doing this, found evidence that this group was smuggling heroin across various borders um, and also found a lot of evidence that led him to become convinced that the KGB was actually actively colluding with the Tampov group and kind of just ignoring what they were doing because they were in on it. Uh, So this was possibly the first time that Litvinenko started to become a target, so to speak, of the KGB, started to kind of question what it was they were actually doing. So in 1994, Litvinenko was transferred to the economic security and, sorry, transferred from the economic security and organized crime unit to the anti-terrorism department, where he continued to do work combating organized crime just in a major setting. Uh, specifically when he was working there, he was looking further into the possible collusion between the KGB and other organized crime groups. Cause he didn't think the Tambov could be the only ones. Um, so going back just a tiny bit in 1993, a year before he was transferred, he was also working on a case in which professional dancers were being threatened with violence and receiving demands for money. And it was at this time that he met his second wife. Uh, She was one of the dancers at this academy, and they had invited him to go celebrate her birthday. And despite both he and her being married to other people at this point, they soon after divorced their respective partners and married each other and had a child in October 1994 named Anatoly. So just a little bit of context. We're talking about a new wife now. Her name is Marina, and she will come up pretty frequently in this. Um... So, yeah, let's get on with it. In 1994, again, he had met a name or a man whose name was Boris uh, Berezovsky. Berezovsky worked in his early years as a government scientist before becoming a successful businessman and also became very close with some of the foreign Russian president or former Russian presidents. 
Um, and then at this time, he was also considered to be an oligarch of Russia because of how wealthy and how much of a political influence that he had in their country. So Litvinenko met Berezovsky when he was investigating Berezovsky's business uh, with the FSB in an attempt to establish how Russia was being transformed uh, while the country was going through so much political turmoil. Um, and not long after their first meeting, Berezovsky was actually the victim of a terror attack where someone had planted a bomb in a car near Berezovsky's workplace and set it off uh, when he had arrived. His driver was killed, uh, but he and his bodyguard were both injured and sent to the hospital for two weeks. And it was during this investigation into the terror attack in June of 1994 that Linfinyeko and Berezovsky actually became very close friends. Uh, the history of the relationship is long and it's somewhat complicated and I don't want to take up too much of this episode because it definitely could. Um, but there is just one more event that happened regarding these two that I wanted to mention before moving on. So in March of 1995, Vlad Listiev, who was one of the most popular TV presenters at the time in Russia, uh, he was also the head of an independent TV station that was controlled by Berezovsky because he was a very prominent businessman. Um, and this uh, TV presenter was murdered. So sometime within the same month of being murdered, police raided Berezovsky's office to arrest him for the murder. But Litvinenko was with him at the time that this occurred. And according to Litvinenko's wife, Maria, in a later testimony, she said that Litvinenko had feared that if arrested, Berezovsky was going to be murdered in police custody because he was such a high figure. Um, so fearing this, Litvinenko took out his gun and pointed it at the police and then said, quote, if you try to catch him, I'll kill you. So Maria also reported that this action was authorized by at least one of Litvinenko's superiors. So clearly there was someone else higher up that knew this was wrong. Um, um, is it legal to point a gun at a police officer and then threaten their lives? See, I don't think it is. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's during the inquiry, there's a lot of like the judge or whoever's writing it kind of makes side comments that are like, I'm not going to comment on the lawfulness of this. Okay. We're just getting facts. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but yeah, so a lot of the stuff that Linfinenko was involved in at the FSB probably wasn't terribly lawful. Um, but a lot of it is attributed to him being directed by his superiors to do this. And because it was probably a scary time working in the FSB. A lot of people just kind of obliged without questioning it. Um, so yeah, that was kind of like the budding, I guess, of Berezovsky and Litvinenko's relationship. And I will talk with Berezovsky a little bit later. Uh, but for now, I just wanted to give like a brief history on how they came to know each other. So he doesn't come out of the blue later. <laughs> so in the summer of 1997, Litvinenko was transferred from his current position within the FSB to the Department for the Investigation and Prevention of Organized Crime, a.k.a. the URPO. So during a police interview, um, which, as we'll discuss later, 
Litvinenko had a few police interviews between like 1995 and 2006, and it didn't specify which police interview this came from. But in a police interview with Litvinenko, he described the URPO as, quote, a top secret department of the KGB whose role was killing political and high businessmen without verdict, unquote. So he's in a really good, really good place in his career i guess he kind of feels like an evil james bond right now i know i get i get that that inkling too (laughs) that's crazy yeah so um while he was working with the urpo linfinenko himself stated that he has had to conduct various operations that would be considered unlawful like there has been multiple people that he's been ordered to assaults in order to rob them basically whatever they can do to strike fear into them to stop whatever it is they're doing that the government doesn't like do you just mean like attack for assault yeah i mean at least okay. the, the parts that i had read it suggested that he wasn't ordered to kill other people but he was specifically ordered to like physically assault them and and rob them okay. of their belongings okay so he obviously wasn't happy about doing this work, but it, it was what he was told to do, so he did it. Um, but there was one operation that he was ordered to perform that was sort of the breaking point for Litvinenko. Um, and this is when he was ordered to kill one of his closest friends, Berezovsky. So in Litvinenko's own words, uh, quote, I was instructed by Aki Kavchnikov to physically exterminate Berezovsky and considered his words in order. I disobeyed the order only because it was an illegal order, unquote. So what happened next was quite possibly the beginning of events that ultimately led to his death nine years later. Um, over the next few months after that order, um, So the order was in 1998. I should mention that. Um, Litvinenko and some of his colleagues at the FSB would come to be known as whistleblowers. Um, They approached Berezovsky in March of 1998 to inform him of the orders that they'd been given to kill him. And uh, Berezovsky then suggested that they raise a complaint to President Yeltsin, who was the president of Russia at the time, uh, that they raise a complaint to his deputy chief of staff, who, once talking to him, asked that they refer the case to the military prosecution service. So they filed an official complaint with them, uh, basically to tell them what this organization is doing and how wrong and unlawful it is. And throughout the process of filing these complaints to various high-ranking officials, um, Litvinenko and his other whistleblowing colleagues decided that they needed to make a video or of some sort of permanent evidence. Um, as said by Marina, she said it was in case someone was arrested or killed because they fully suspected that one of them was going to be arrested or killed for being a whistleblower. So they filmed these interviews with a well-known broadcaster of the independent TV station that Berezovsky owned. They filmed this on April 19th of 98, but they chose not yet to release the video statements because they didn't want too much kind of heat or pressure coming at them yet. So by this point, the head of the FSB had been told what was happening and was reportedly very unhappy about it, stating that he believed Litvinenko and his colleagues were being uh, or were 
betraying the security services. So just a day later, on April 20th of 98, the head of the FSB, Mr. Koyalev, or Kov- Kovalev, <laughs> um, ordered Litvinenko and his colleagues to withdraw their allegations, but they refused to do so. So when they refused to do so, they were immediately suspended from their jobs at the FSB. So... After this, throughout May and June of 1998, Litvinenko and his colleagues gave all of the evidence they had to the Military Prosecution Service. Um, And on June 7th of 98, the president of Russia dismissed the current head of the FSB who had suspended them and replaced him with a new director, uh, Mr. Vladimir Putin. So Litvinenko after Putin had been uh, signed to be the new director, was ordered to have a meeting with Putin in order to provide him with whatever information he knew about corruption and unlawful contact in the FSB that took place sometime in August 1998. I couldn't find the exact day of the meeting. Um, Reportedly, Litvinenko did not feel confident after meeting Putin that he was going to provide any positive change to this organization. He said that he seemed more like someone playing the role of a director than actually doing the job of a useful director. So fast forward a couple months to October of 1998, the investigation being conducted by the military prosecution service into the URPO Um, was closed, and they had determined that they found that no crimes had been committed and nothing was going wrong. So, obviously, Litvinenko didn't feel the same. So, in retaliation to this finding, on November 13th of 98, Berezovsky, who was also involved in this whole ordeal, published an open letter to Putin in the media, who, at the time, Berezovsky and Putin were actually friends. Like, there wasn't any reason for one of them to come after the other. Um, He published an open letter to Putin detailing allegations and evidence that was brought forward by Litvinenko and colleagues that made it pretty hard to ignore the fact that there were definitely crimes being committed. So in this letter, Berezovsky asked Putin to use any power he had as director of the URPO, or sorry, the FSB, to renew the constitutional order of the FSB and the Russian government. So on November 17th, 1998, which was a few days after this letter was published, Litvinenko held a press conference in Moscow to publicly express his concerns with the actions of the FSB. And this press conference was attended by journalists and reporters uh, worldwide. So it got a lot of traction. This was being spoken about very publicly and globally by this point. And not even a month after this conference, in December 98, Litvinenko and his colleagues that also gave statements were ultimately dismissed from the FSB, and an investigation was opened by the FSB on Litvinenko and the actions he was taking against them. So on March 25th, 1999, so this is about five or six months after the conference, Uh, Litvinenko was charged with exceeding his authority by assaulting a suspect, and he was held in detention for eight months while he awaited trial. However, on November 26th of the same year, 99, he was acquitted of all charges because obviously they didn't have evidence against him. The celebrations of his acquittal, unfortunately, 
didn't even get to start. They didn't get to celebrate, but they didn't even get to start the celebrations because right after giving the acquittal, um, FSB officers stormed into the courtroom and announced that they were arresting Litvinenko again, this time on charges of mishandling suspects and stealing goods during an operation. So once again, Litvinenko from the courtroom was taken to be held in detention, but this time was released on bail just under a month after his arrest in December of 99. So, of course, the second charge also fell through because Litvinenko was able to provide evidence that confirmed he could not have committed this crime on the day that they were suggesting he did, and they were forced to let him go. However, this was not before the FSB was able to confiscate both his passport and advised him not to leave Moscow. So as the FSB was preparing to bring a third set of charges against Litvinenko, he decided that he needed to flee Russia. Um, it was reported that many of Litvinenko's family members, as well as himself, were being threatened uh, with physical assault or more. Um, and the FSB was formulating false evidence against him. So as such, Litvinenko feared for his family's safety and ultimately made the decision that he felt was best for his family. So Litvinenko and two other men had reportedly began plotting his escape in September of 2000. And just over a month later, he managed to safely get to London with his wife and son, Anatoly, on November 1st of 2000. So when landing in the Heathrow airport, it's reported that um, Litvinenko basically ran off the plane, ran into the airport, uh, found a police officer working in the airport and said, quote, I am KGB officer and I'm asking for political asylum. So basically at this point, he knew he was in trouble, but he was doing all that he can to protect his family and himself. And it's I feel like it's not often I hear of cases of people seeking political asylum, but I could just not be up to date with the news. <laughs> yeah, I think it's kind of neat that he felt safe being like, hey, this is who I am. Like, I need help. Um, but was there any mention about what his other child and his ex-wife did they have to protect them at all? See, that, I was, I have a lot of questions about that too. I was not able to find much of anything about them, at least regarding like after they got divorced. I okay. did hear that apparently his son, I think Alexander, started to become a little closer with him, closer to his death, and now kind of is like a, a voice for his father. But okay. I didn't see anything that suggested he was trying to protect them. He was just trying to protect, protect sorry, his current wife and right. his son with her. Okay. Yeah, because I feel like it would cause a bit of issues if your name is literally Alexander Litvinenko, like, junior, and everyone's like, oh, like, we want this man. He's like, yeah, that's not me, I promise. Yeah, I'm, I'm younger than that. Please <laughs> yeah. don't take me. <laughs> I couldn't do that. Please leave me alone. <laughs> so... Um, that basically is the backstory of Litvinenko that we had just went over. Um, so it's childhood to when he was living in London and why he chose to flee to London as an ex-spy with the KGB. I'm going to gloss over a little bit of the information of his time in London, as I'd like to get into telling you guys about the story of his crime that led to his death. Um... But I am going to obviously give you a few details of his time there, just so that it's not like a six-year gap in events. <laughs> so in 
So between their arrival in 2000 to his death in 2006, Linfinenko and his family had ended up receiving new names and documentation. Uh, they both got new jobs. They went to language school to learn English and further assimilate in the UK. Um, and at one point, they even became naturalized citizens of Britain. So also while they were in London, Berezovsky, who was Litvinenko's like, closest friend, um, around between 2000 and 2002, he also had to seek refuge in Britain because he also kind of had a target on his head. Um, he actually helped his family with accommodation. So he, he helped pay for their hotel rooms. I think he paid their rent on their first home for like a year or something. Like he was just generally very helpful in trying to keep his family safe. Um, and Berezovsky also gave Litvinenko a job. Uh, I'm not sure what Litvinenko did under Berezovsky, but it is reported that they worked together for some period while in London. So throughout their time in Britain, Litvinenko, even though he was trying to assimilate, trying to protect his family, was anything but quiet about the events occurring in Russia. Uh, while living in London, he published two books detailing the atrocities happening, uh, and he also published many more articles, uh, as this time um, he had actually become a journalist, writer, and consultant for the British intelligence services, mainly focusing on making the actions of the Russian government organizations public and also investigating crimes that might have been occurring uh, by the Russian government. In October of 2006, Litvinenko was still working as a journalist and had been investigating the death of a Russian journal journalist whose name was Anna Politskovaya, um, as he had reason to believe that she had been killed by the Russian government. So on November 1st of 2006, Litvinenko met with a man named Maria Scaramella, uh, who was working in academia in Italy. I believe he was known as like a nuclear expert, like he's really good with nuclear weapons. And uh, this man provided Linfinenko with documents about the death of the journalist, because apparently he kind of had ties with others in Russia that had more information about this. So later in the day, after meeting with Skaramella, Litvinenko went to a hotel bar in London to meet up with two former KGB officers, whose names were Dmitry Kovtun and Andrei Lagovi. Um, reportedly the purpose of this meeting was never really known. I think it's just that all of them were ex KGB. They wanted to get together. It's been a while. They went to this pub to drink some tea and just kind of chat and catch up. Um, however, the meeting was cut somewhat short as one of the members, I believe it was Lugavi or Lugavoy was on vacation with his family in London to watch, uh, soccer or football for Europeans <laughs> um, and had to go because they were go he was going to go catch a game with his family. Lipinenko had said later that while he did drink tea with them while he was there, there wasn't much tea left by the time he started pouring it. So he maybe only had half a cup and it was cold. So he might've only had four or five sips of the tea. Um, and then that was that he left the pub went back to home where he was meeting his wife, Maria, as they were going to have a nice little celebration dinner because November 1st, which 
um, was what this day was, November 1st, 2006, uh, was the anniversary of both them arriving in London and then a couple years later, also the anniversary of them getting their naturalized citizenship in Britain. So Litvinenko was reported by his wife and others that knew him to live a very healthy lifestyle. Like he never got sick and he he never drank alcohol. He never smoked. He was very fit, drank or ate healthy diets. So when in the early hours of November 2nd, when he woke up uh, vomiting, Maria was a little bit concerned because he's very healthy guy. Why is this happening? Um, so she stated in an interview that he decided to go sleep in the spare room once this started because he didn't want to disturb her. Um, but the next morning when she had entered the spare room to see how he was doing, she reported him looking exhausted and he had still not stopped vomiting since the night before. So throughout the day um, of November 2nd, Litvinenko's condition only continued to get worse. He, by this point, was unable to keep down any food or drinks. Uh, so they called the doctor, who suggested that he try salt and mineral solutions kind of to stay hydrated and maybe stop throwing up or stop whatever bug he had. Um, so his wife went and got those for him, but everything he tried to take would just immediately come back up. So nothing seemed to be helping. So in the very early hours of November 3rd, after his condition has still not improved since November 1st, uh, Maria decided that we, they needed to call an ambulance because something was wrong. However, when the paramedics arrived at their home, they advised him that they thought he was most likely just suffering from like a stomach bug or a flu. And they suggested to him that he just stay home and wait it out because it probably won't last much longer. So... By the middle of the day on November 3rd, which is really only like 12 hours at most after they called paramedics, um, his con his condition once again got worse. By this point, he was complaining of just overall pain, and he had also started experiencing uh, bloody diarrhea in addition to the vomiting, which is not a good thing, in case you don't know. <laughs> Um, so by this point, again, they called a doctor, explained the situation, and the doctor explained that they should go to the hospital right away. So they called an ambulance, and then this time the ambulance took him to the hospital. So once arriving at the hospital, Linfinenko was put under a vast series of tests to figure out what was wrong with him. And throughout this time, he was misdiagnosed with various ailments. Um, but then when they try to treat these ailments and they didn't work, they would just keep running more tests. And it was just like a litany of tests and treatment and tests and treatment. So Litvinenko's first blood test when he arrived at the hospital had found that he had normal platelet levels, but that his hemoglobin and white blood cell counts were high, which obviously was bizarre. And additionally, the blood test found that his body was producing really high levels of both creatine and urea, which also happens when you become dehydrated. So they thought that he probably became dehydrated because of how much he was throwing up. So the first diagnosis they gave him uh, was gastroenteritis, um, which is, I think it's just some sort of stomach flu. Um, so they started him on a course of just broad spectrum antibiotics on November 4th, expecting all of his problems to go away. 
However, on November 9th, so he's still being treated for gastroenteritis, uh, five days in, Maria, his wife, expressed concerns to a doctor that she felt that her husband's infection could possibly be a poisoning and not infection because he was known and did know some very dangerous people and that in the past they did have a friend of theirs poisoned and killed by these dangerous people. However, the doctor reassured her that the symptoms he was having were pretty common. They're just stomach bug symptoms and that he probably wasn't poisoned, like nothing to worry about. So a few days later, on November 13th, the doctor noticed that Linfinenko's symptoms weren't really looking like that of his initial diagnosis anymore. Like they were, they should have been getting better, but they weren't. Um... They found that it didn't look like the symptoms of gastroenteritis or entonitis, but it also didn't look like toxicity caused by antibiotics. So he kind of thought back to Maria's comment about poison and started to consider that more seriously. So as such, he ran a series of toxicology tests um, to figure out what was really happening. So another doctor that was present when Litvinenko was in the hospital reported that he remembers seeing Litvinenko and thinking uh, back to other patients he had had and noticing how similar Litvinenko's symptoms and appearance was to someone who was suffering acute leukemia and was being treated with intense chemotherapy and total body irradiation. So as a result, uh, they asked the radiology department to check for radioactive sources of poisoning. Um, but at this time, they didn't actually find anything. So a couple days later, again, on November 16th, a doctor stated that Linfinenko's preliminary toxicology report uh, looked like he might be suffering from thallium poisoning. Um, so as such, the same evening, they started treating him with pr uh, Prussian blue, which I don't remember if we've ever spoken about thallium poisoning, but Prussian blue is the one treatment for thallium poisoning, but if you catch it in time, like it's incredibly effective. Isn't it also an indicator? Like a, we used it as an indicator in chem class or something. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. I don't know. It just sounds very familiar. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Yeah. I feel like we talked about thallium poisoning, like in class, not on the podcast. So that's why. Yeah. This sounds familiar. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, so they um, they treated him for thallium poisoning because they were pretty confident this time that's what he had. And they did say that it appeared that it was helping him for a while. Like he was starting to gain some of his color and he was getting a little more active again. Um, so they thought like this is the cause of the illness. It has to be thallium poisoning. Um, but... As they treated him for this, they started to become concerned because they continued running tests throughout his hospital stay on like his blood and urine just to monitor like his levels. Um, and they found that his tests were now showing that his bone marrow was degenerating uh, and wasn't actually forming any of the normal like blood forming elements anymore. So those were just kind of missing. So on November 17th, Litvinenko was transferred from the hospital he was admitted to to the University College Hospital, or the UCH, for further testing and treatment for thallium poisoning. And despite the initial improvements that they had been seeing, uh, once he got to the UCH, he began, began to decline again, um, and he actually started vomiting up blood, um, had consistent abdominal pain, 
and was also developing an irregular heartbeat, which was obviously concerning. Um, so medical staff initially thought because of these symptoms that maybe he was having a reaction to one of the antibiotics he had been given. Uh, so as such, they transferred him to the ICU so that they could just keep constant monitoring of his heartbeat to make sure nothing happened. So on November 19th, Litvinenko was transferred to the ICU so they could continuously monitor his heartbeat uh, because they thought of this adverse reaction to the antibiotics. So on November 20th, Litvinenko's condition was reassessed again, and doctors were increasingly concerned about his deteriorating bone marrow, um, as they should be. Your bone marrow shouldn't deteriorate. Um, (laughs) but he was also experiencing a rising body temperature and his platelet count in his blood was continuing to drop. So to combat the platelets dropping, um, around November 20th, they had ended up giving Litvinenko a blood transfusion, thinking that that was going to help. So it was also around this time that doctors were starting to doubt their diagnosis of thallium poisoning as the symptoms were continuing to change in a way that they no longer reflected that diagnosis. By this time, Litvinenko's renal functions were also deteriorating and all of his other organs were also beginning to fail. So by this point, he is clearly critically ill and they still don't actually know what's happening to him, which I cannot imagine how scary that would be. Um, So again, a day later, on November 21st, a doctor of the poison unit of the hospital was consulted and they confirmed that they no longer thought it was thallium poisoning. It no longer looked like it. And so he advised Litvinenko's doctor to investigate radioisotopes and then gave him the contact details for the Atomic Weapons Establishment, uh, otherwise known as the AWE. And I think they gave him this contact detail because they had the tools to detect radiation. Um, So while they were contacting the AWE, uh, it was during the same night on November 21st that Linfinenko had two heart attacks, um, but he was resuscitated from both of them, thankfully. Um, So on November 22nd, uh, doctors officially stopped treating him for thallium poisoning because the poison specialist had confirmed, like, yeah, that is not what's going on. So... um, while Litvinenko was being treated now for his two heart attacks, on the same night, uh, blood and urine samples were sent to the AWE and they put on like an expedited testing. So it was actually, um, it took them like the whole night, if I remember correctly, to test them, but they had the test results by November 22nd. So the next day. And they had a meeting with his doctors and they confirmed to the doctors that his urine sample tests had come back um, with polonium present in it. So on November 23rd at 8.51 p.m., Litvinenko again went into cardiac arrest. This was his third time. And while attempts were made to resuscitate him, uh, it was very clear that they were not going to be able to this time. So Litvinenko was announced dead at 9.21 p.m. on November 23rd of 2006, 23 days after his initial symptoms had started. They announced his cause of death as multiple organ failure, including progressive heart failure, because that is 
just everything that this poison had done to this body. And they still didn't have like a confirmed poison. Like there was evidence of it in his urine, but they weren't able to do more testing before he had passed away. So during the first few days that Linfinenko was in the hospital, just rewinding a little bit, police had actually come and conducted lengthy interviews with him to see if Lintvinenko had any inkling or like thought he might've known what could have happened or who could have done this to him. And Lintvinenko had told police that it was possible that someone had poisoned him. Uh, And he even provided the names of three people that he believed could have been the only three people that were responsible for his murder. And that was Mario Scaramella, who was the man that provided him with documents about the Russian reporter's murder. And Andre Lugovoy, sorry, or Dmitry Kovtun, who were the two men that he had tea with later that day on November 1st. So he was not a dumb man by any means and clearly had been thinking about this, like, who could have done it, what could have happened. And he was he was not new to the idea that someone could try to murder him. Um. But either way, uh, during this interview, he did state that he believed that the Russian government was ultimately responsible, telling one of the investigators, quote, I have no doubt whatsoever that this was done by the Russian secret services, having knowledge of the system. I know that the order about such a killing of a citizen of another country on its territory, especially if it is something to do with Great Britain, could have been given by only one person. So then the investigator had asked Linfinenko who he thought that one person, uh, who that one person he was talking about is, who could have given the order to kill a naturalized British citizen. And he said, quote, that person is the president of the Russian Federation, Vladimir Putin. So on November 21st, Linfinenko signed a statement that he, with the help he was too ill at this point um, with the help of his friends and colleagues uh, had written was then read to the media just outside of the UCH. And I'm not going to read the whole statement just because it is a couple paragraphs long, um, but I will post it in our sources uh, just because it is officially known as his deathbed statement because of how renowned it came and how much it didn't necessarily provide information, but it confirmed that Lutvinenko was very convinced that the Russian government was to be to blame for this incident. Um, but there is one part of the statement that uh, I will read. And that is quote, you may succeed in silencing me, but that silence comes at a price. You have shown yourself to be as barbaric and ruthless as your most hostile critics have claimed unquote. So pretty strong words coming from a man's deathbed. That's crazy. Yeah, that honestly is a pretty it's a pretty strong statement. That's all I really have to say about it. Like you can tell he is very very convinced and has the evidence to suggest that this is likely who's responsible. Yeah, it's very But obviously at this time they couldn't confirm it cuz they didn't have enough. Yikes. Good for him though like to just get that last like hey, I know you did it. Like, I'm not, I'm still not afraid of you. Yeah, exactly. Like, just staying strong until the end, really. Yeah. 
crazy. Like, because he was a journalist, like, speaking out against everything happening in Russia. And for him to literally do that until, like, the hour of his death is pretty crazy. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) So, following Litvinenko's death, um, a very thorough scientific examination was conducted of his body. Um, One of the tests done was using gamma ray spectrometry, And they performed tests on various tissue samples. Uh, They performed them on samples from his lungs, his spleen, his kidneys, his liver, um, and also other body parts, like I think his actual skin surface, like his epidermis and his brain and maybe his esophagus. I don't remember on that one. But they did state that in every single sample, they found high levels of polonium-210. Uh, They said that the highest level was in his kidney, and it was at about 49,000 becquerels per gram of tissue. And the lowest was in his lung at 3,500 becquerels gram of tissue. And just to note, uh, because I didn't know this before researching, becquerels is a unit of measurement for radiation. And obviously, like, the lower the level, the better. (laughs) Do you know what, how much the average person has? Like, what their becquerels I was trying to... I was trying to find that. Nicole, I'm not sure if you were able to find like a lethal dose of polonium. Yeah, so I don't know Becquerel's like in the the the, the websites, that's weird. Um, I was looking at they used RADs as their form of measurement. Okay, um, that's the one I'm familiar with too. So when I read Becquerel, I was confused. Yeah, so... It depends. Like, I do mention it, but basically you can handle about 200 rads before it starts to do a lot of damage. Um, And that's, though, in a short period of time. But if you're over, like, a lengthy period of time, if it's prolonged, your body can withstand, like, thousands of rads. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I did just find a brief uh, PubMed article it's basically the description of the PubMed article, but um, so it it gives basically like what's considered the lethal dose of um, polonium two ten if it's absorbed by an adult male. Um, so just for reference, uh, doctors performed more tests to kind of determine like how much polonium two ten Litvinenko had consumed, and they concluded an estimate of about. 4.1 to 4.4 giga becquerels of two, uh, polonium-210 was consumed. And according to this PubMed article, a dose of 0.1 to 0.3 giga becquerels are fatal within a month. Oh Holy my shit. gosh. Sorry, pardon my French. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, so he, uh, it's, it's safe to say he was given a fatal dose. Well, it's crazy yeah. that he had, like... What is that, like 400 times the lethal dose? And it still took him a month to die. Yeah, like that's all crazy. Three weeks. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so they, the tests they performed were pretty interesting because it's just, this is like the first reported case of someone actually being murdered by polonium 210 poisoning, which is really interesting, but obviously really tragic. Um, but they did another test on a hair sample that they retrieved from him before he had died. And they had also found that Litvinenko was likely not only poisoned once, but was actually poisoned twice with polonium-210. 
uh, but within the same time period of each other. But the first round of polonium was about 100 times smaller than the first round. So the second round was likely the lethal one, but it was still like it kind of added on top of the first that shouldn't have been in his in his system. So do you think just to create a conspiracy, um, because he was able to withstand such a high dose for like the same amount of time as such a small dose, do you think he was being exposed to it? like throughout the six years or whatever that he lived in London and had just built up a tolerance. And then once it reached that 4.4 giga becquerels, um, that's when it became lethal. I think it's possible. Like I didn't, I didn't read much at all. Or I guess I should say, in like the inquiry, they never really mentioned um, the two men that he went to a meeting with on November 1st before mentioning the meeting. Mm -hmm. So it could have like, they very well could have done it, but he did say that there was a lot of people that he didn't know if he could trust despite being friends because of the involvement he had with the KGB in the past. Right. Um, So I think, I think it's worth thinking about. Sorry. Was he the only one from that meeting that died or got severely ill? Because that tea that he was having seemed suspicious to me. <laughs> I think something was put in that tea. <laughs> I think that is actually what they determined. They did put it in the tea at some point. And I was actually briefly going to go over this. Um, it was like my next point. So during the investigation that happened, um, they were basically able to make like a perfect map of where both Litvinenko went after the poisoning, as well as the suspects went before and up to the poisoning, because polonium-210 is so radioactive that everywhere, like, they walked, like, they basically left, like, a radioactive trail everywhere they went with, like, a Geiger counter. Oh, my God. That's so cool. (laughs) So they were able to find, yeah, so they were able to find, like, before Litvinenko got to the uh, restaurant, they had CCTV footage of both of these suspects going into the bathroom in certain stalls at different intervals. And both of those stalls had radia- or radiation uh, indicators. <laughs> oh, no way. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so it- they had ingested it at some point, too, and not enough for it to be lethal or just from being around it. That's what it's from. It's very, very possible they inhaled it because it also was found that despite that they only technically – intentionally poisoned Litvinenko people that were in their vicinity while all of this was happening like over the past course of like a couple months also got really sick oh I don't God, think wow. any of them had died but there are reports of like people being in that restaurant like after the event had happened getting like really sick and ended up getting like radiation poisoning basically just because of the traces of pol- polonium that were still present wow so wow. I'm sure like they might not have known how dangerous it was to be carrying around a radioactive substance, but they yeah. they probably also did damage to themselves. <laughs> so with that, I'm sure Nicole will probably cover this, but like, is polonium-210 less lethal if you inhale it or come into contact with it other than just ingesting it? You need to have it in your system. Okay, but is the way that it gets in your system different? No. No. Okay. 
Like, I'll discuss. Okay. Don't you worry. Okay. I will answer your question. <laughs> you're, you're getting ahead of yourself. Sorry, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> so I um, was trying to look up, like, the specific investigation into his death. And have learned that it was incredibly lengthy to the point where um, it actually was still going on until September of last year. So I think we might be here for another hour if I were to go into detail about all of that. Um, But if anyone would like more information about all of it, I'll post sources. Um, But the investigation into his death was very lengthy. Like it basically started while he was in the hospital with the police investigations of Litvinenko and carried on until September of 2021 uh, when the European Court of Human Rights, uh, who was the ones ultimately kind of making the judgment on this case because it is like a multi- uh, over-border, cross-border investigation. What? international investigation that's the one (laughs) thanks ben (laughs) that's what i was Um, just gonna say yeah because this was an international investigation it only seemed right that the european court of human rights um made this decision and so in september 2021 they published their official judgment that found without a reasonable doubt that both andre lugavoy and dimitri kovton who were the two ex-kgb uh, officers who he had tea with on November 21st were uh, the two that were responsible. They said, quote, um, not they like the criminals, but the European Court of Human Rights uh, said, quote, they were acting as agents of the respondent state Russia. And as such, they not only found those individuals responsible, but they also found the entire country of Russia responsible for Litvinenko's death. So they ordered Russia to pay Marina, his wife, 100,000 euros in damages plus 22,500 euros in legal costs, which, in my opinion, is way too little of a punishment. Yeah, that's not enough to uh, pay back what happened to him. But the fact that they got Russia to pay her is amazing. This is true. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. I completely agree. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And I like, there's obviously still a lot of theories going around. Like, even though they made an official judgment, like there's, there's theories that Lipdinenko actually did this to himself. There's theories. It's still the academic he met up with earlier in the day. There's so many theories, which I think is what part of what makes it difficult to find like reputable sources for this, which is, yeah, like if you're interested in reading the entire public inquiry, uh, which I probably will at some point, to be honest, it's 343 pages. And that's where I got like all of this information. <laughs> um, uh, we'll post it in our sources because it is like publicly available. I just found it online. Um, but it's really interesting. And there is so many small details that obviously like I can't just read an over 300 page document to you guys. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's a super interesting case with so many intricacies, and I have very much enjoyed researching it, and I hope you've enjoyed the case. <laughs> yeah, I was like, when I was looking up um, information to put on like our stories, 
I had to stop myself from just like reading everything about him because I was like, this is so fascinating. But I didn't want to spoil it. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> well, thank you, Rebecca. That was phenomenal. I'm no problem. I'm so glad to share it. I'm so happy to share it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so awesome. And now we get to learn about all the nerdy science stuff from Nicole. I'm also excited because radiation's fascinating. It is. Um, as long as you're not being poisoned by it. So um, <laughs> I'll, give, I'll hand it over to you, Nicole. Okay. I will say I am not a chemist. <laughs> so um, if any of this doesn't make sense, I apologize for that. I tried my best to kind of like crash course it um, for everyone. So we'll see how this goes. But to kind of start more broadly, I wanted to go over what radiation is in itself to begin with and then kind of specify further into radiation poisoning. Since it's it's kind of a bit tricky if you talk about radiation poisoning without knowing what radiation is and what, you know, so, radiation itself is a form of energy, and it has a, both an electric and a magnetic field, and it contains wave-like properties, but it can also occur naturally and from man-made sources. So, when I say, like, wave-like properties, it's literally just, like, sine waves if you know math and, yeah, that kind of thing. Um, but then this energy is then transmitted or absorbed into something else. And in and of itself, it's not very dangerous, um, but it's the type of radiation that then makes it dangerous. And, and each type has like varying properties and varying effects to it. Um, but if you consider like visible light, visible light is a type of electromagnetic radiation. Um, and so it kind of sits in that mid-range section if you look at the electromagnetic spectrum, if you are familiar with that. And this is just a range of electromagnetic radiations. So as the peaks and the troughs of these energy waves kind of elongate and stretch out, this is kind of associated with more radio waves, microwaves, and infrared radiation um, that can be released. And then if those waves tighten and kind of like smush together, this decreases the space in between each peak and trough of that wave. And these are more likely to emit like radiation similar or sorry, these are more likely to emit radiation like ultraviolet, X-ray and gamma, gamma rays. And so the types of radiation are also then categorized as either non-ionizing or ionizing radiation. And the difference between the two is that non-ionizing doesn't have enough energy to be able to remove an electron from their atom, and ionizing does. So non-ionizing still has enough energy to move atoms around and cause them to vibrate, but they just can't take that electron and remove it to something else or just remove it. So examples of non-ionizing radiation would be like radio waves and visible light. Ionizing radiation, though, it is able to take those electrons out. So they basically knock the electrons out from the atoms. And as the name suggests, suggest, this is called ionization. And so when this happens, it has the potential to affect and harm living things, which obviously poses a health risk for us as humans and 
as living things. Um, but this is because tissues and DNA itself can be damaged because of this. But um, so examples of non-ionizing, like I said, like visible light, an example of ionizing radiation would include x-rays and say like radioactive waste. And so, yeah, I have a question. Um, so ionizing radiation is harmful, whereas non-ionizing radiation is generally not harmful? Correct. And like that's okay. not... I. I'm not going to 100% say that because I yeah. just don't know. Like, I'm sure radio waves after however long could be harmful to you. Um, right. But it's those, like, tight waves, like X-rays um, that are more harmful to you. Okay. And it's the instability Can- of that electron going that makes it harmful. That was my next question. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From what I understand, that's what makes it harmful. Okay, fair enough. Um, But yeah, so radioactive elements do exist in the wild, and these are like uranium or radium. They undergo a process called radioactive decay, and this is when they emit ionizing radiation. So they give off this harmful radiation as they decay, and it's generally in the form of alpha particles, beta particles, and or gamma rays. So you've got like, it's really confusing because it all kind of sounds the same, but you've got non-ionizing, ionizing. Within ionizing, you have like alpha, beta, gamma, kind of, which are harmful. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, So alpha particles, they contain two protons, two neutrons, and are usually, well, they are positively charged. And they're admitted as the heaviest Um, radioactive elements undergo radioactive decay. So these would be elements like uranium, radium, like I said, but also polonium. And this was the um, element involved in Litvinenko's case. So alpha particles themselves are not really a huge concern to us when it's outside the body. Um, They don't have enough energy to actually go through barriers or other things, which you could think of as clothing or skin. Um, But if ingested and inside your body, whether it be like drinking it, eating it, um, cutting yourself and it getting in that way, alpha particles can really damage living tissues. And so that was kind of in the case with um, Litvinenko was – Outside, it doesn't pose a huge thing, but as soon as it was ingested, these alpha particles kind of got to work. Um, But due to their ability to damage living organisms, they are more dangerous than any other type of radiation. And the energy released through decay can enter into like only a few cells worth in your body, which results even more in even more damage um, to your cells and DNA down the line. And so alpha particles covered. Now beta particles, these are negatively charged small particles that are emitted during this decay process. They've got a bit more penetrating ability compared to alpha particles, um, but they're a lot, I wouldn't say a lot less, they're just less damaging to living tissues and DNA compared to alpha particles. And this is because the ionizations aren't tightly spaced And they have to move, like, when ionizing, I guess, 
the electrons or whatever it is, they have to move farther through the air than alpha particles. Chemistry people, tell me how that works because that's kind of what I understood from it. Um, but they're also harmful if they manage to make their way into your body. So even with this increased penetrability, though, they still can't penetrate layers of like clothing or even thin objects or substances like aluminum. So again, like alpha particles, they really only, not only, but they, the majority of their harm comes from being within the system. And so another form of ionizing radiation are these gamma rays. If you're familiar with the Hulk, um, this is the form of radiation that causes him to Hulk out and turn into the Incredible Hulk. Um, but it is pure energy and can kind of be thought as, as visible light, but just with like incredibly increased energy. Um, so when decay does occur, gamma rays will often accompany alpha and beta particles. Um, so it's not just them. Not all the time. Maybe it could happen. I don't know. But they're typically accompanied by these other particles. Um, and these gamma rays pose dangerous risks for the entire body, both inside and out, um, unlike alpha and beta particles. Um, they can easily penetrate things that alpha and beta particles cannot, including, including this clothing and skin. And when they pass through the human body, ionization can occur that results in damage to tissues and DNA. So in Litvinenko's case, as Rebecca already discussed, he was poisoned with polonium-210. And this is basically just a product of the decay of uranium. So while polonium also is an element um, and can occur naturally in the Earth's crust in very low levels, it is also a product of the decay of uranium. And so during the radioactive decay of natural uranium, though, if you take a ton of uranium and decay that ton, less than 0.1 milligrams of polonium-210 will be produced, though. So not a lot <laughs> compared to the amount of uranium needed. And it has a half-life about of about 140 days. And this is quite quick, um, considering the half-life of carbon-14 is almost 6,000 years. <laughs> so 140 days is um, not that long at all. And by two and a half years after the start of its decay, only about 1% of its actual radiation is still present with that sample. And then eventually it leads or um, it turns into a stable lead isotope. Uh, if large amounts of P... I'm just going to say PO210 just because... I'm kind of lazy in saying polonium every time. Um, so if large amounts of PO210 find their way into living organisms in a short period of time, so acutely, it can be extremely toxic and can ultimately be fatal. And so organs and tissues can be damaged, as we saw with Litvinenko's case, and this can cause further medical symptoms. Uh, this hazardous, hazardous dosage, though, is almost impossible to happen through natural PO210. Um, so it doesn't pose a threat at all to really be around. So if people who live near like uranium mining sites, they face no risk whatsoever just being in vicinity of 
it so they don't have to worry about PO210 radiation poisoning. Um, and surprisingly, PO210 is a carcinogen found in tobacco along with more than 70 others. It's and found in tobacco? Yeah. I did not know that. That is crazy. Right? Um, it must be like at a super low level then. Yeah. Like it's not a lot. I, From my understanding, it was through like soils. Right. That you get it from. Yeah. Um, oh, so probably if you grow the tobacco in a soil with polonium-210, it's just going to show up. Yeah, something okay. like that. We'll go with um, that. <laughs> I actually have the link right here. So exposure through, this is from the site, exposure through inhaling P, inhaling PO210, such as cigarette smoking, can increase risk of lung cancer, yada, yada. Tobacco contains radioactive materials as a result of naturally occurring uranium in the soil and in the calcium phosphate fertilizer routine, routinely applied to tobacco fields. Wow. Uranium eventually decays to radon and airborne decay products attached to the leaves. So polonium may also get absorbed through the roots from the same sources. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. So, yes, so that's natural PO210. But in nuclear reactors, PO210 can artificially be produced, but again, only in very small quantities and it's in milligram amounts so when they kind of did a rough estimate it's been estimated that a global production of po210 is less than 100 grams per year so they're really not making a lot and i don't think it's readily available that's maybe not a bad thing yeah <laughs> i'm okay and with that. so the main like kind of industrial use, I guess, for PO210 is in tools that remove static from given areas by ionizing the air. So I guess like laboratories use these devices or like, I don't know if musicians would, but it just takes that static electricity out, which I thought was interesting. Um, but when exposed to high doses of radiation, typically over a short period of time, the resulting damage is known as radiation poisoning. The term is kind of used interchangeably with radiation sickness and acute radiation syndrome. For the purpose of this episode, though, I'm just going to be sticking with radiation poisoning. Um, it's easier to say, and it's also the title of our episode. So sticking with that one. But as mentioned, radiation poisoning happens um, with high doses of radiation, and so common imaging tests used in medical fields like x-rays or CT scans can't actually cause radiation poisoning. Um, and the higher the radiation you absorb, the more sick you'll be. So the cells that line your gastrointestinal tract as well as your bone marrow are the most vulnerable, pla vulnerable places in your body um, that are susceptible to high energy radiation. And to obviously make things more confusing as on top of it all, radiation poisoning kind of has like two subdivisions to it. So this is acute radiation sickness, um, which is like all at once, um, as the name suggests, acute over a shorter period of time and delayed radiation sickness, as mentioned, delayed over 
a period of time, long period of time. And acute radiation poisoning isn't entirely common, with the majority of cases being due to industrial accidents. So if you think of what happened in at Chernobyl, that would be one of those incidents where radiation poisoning, acute radiation sickness, um, was a result. But the severity and symptoms do depend on the absorption, which depends on how strong the energy is, how long you've been exposed to it, and the distance between you and the source of radiation, in addition to how sensitive that the tissue that's being affected is to the re- radiation. So like as mentioned, like your GI tract or um, bone marrow is going to be a lot more sensitive than your skin, for example, like anything else. But initial signs of radiation poisoning are typically nausea and vomiting, which was seen in Litvinenko's case with him throwing up. And the, the amount of time between the onset of these symptoms and the radiation exposure can actually provide insight into how much radiation they've absorbed. Um, there can then be kind of like a brief period where the individual shows no apparent illness, but this will then be followed by an onset of newer and more serious symptoms. Um, with a mild exposure, it can take hours to weeks before any signs of radiation poisoning is like actually presents itself, but more severe exposure cases can result in signs and symptoms appearing like minutes to days after the initial exposure. And so possible symptoms include nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, headaches, fever, dizziness and disorientation, weakness and fatigue, hair loss, loss, sorry, bloody vomit and stools, um, as again seen with Litvinenko's case. Um, infections can happen and low blood pressure. And so while industrial accidents make up the majority of radiation poisoning cases, other possible sources of high dose radiation can include like nuclear weapons and dirty bombs, which I didn't know the name of prior to this, but these are basically just a mix of like your typical bomb with the release of radioactive material. So if you were to think of like bioterrorism kind of thing, like, using a bomb to spread Ebola or something like that would be something like that. Uh, would uh, Ebola be considered a radioactive material though? No, but just to like okay. picture it, like okay. if it went off and then that spread and everyone was like dying of Ebola, that right. is like the equivalent to um, it putting off okay. radioactive material. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Probably could have chosen a better example for that one. <laughs> Um, but if exposed to high doses of radiation all over the body in a short period of time, there's typically three main stages that your body may go through. And these are the prodromal stage, latent stage, and the overt or manifest illness stage. So the first stage, the prodromal stage, this can last anywhere from minutes to days. And this is associated with nausea, diarrhea, and vomiting. So this is what Litvinenko first experienced um, when he noticed something was going wrong. After this stage, there's a period where it seems like the individuals improved a little bit or they seem to be okay. Um, This is the latent stage. It can last anywhere from a few hours to even a few weeks. And then the final stage is generally specific to the type of radiation poisoning the individual experiences, 
But then there's three kind of main illnesses associated with this. So this is hematopoietic sickness, gastrointestinal sickness. Wow. Sickness. These are tongue twisters. And cardiovascular or central nervous system sickness. So hematopoietic. No, how did the first time? Hematopoietic, you know, the first one, that sickness is illness and damage to your bone marrow and stem cells, basically. And this can occur when exposure is between 200 and 1,000 rads, but acutely, so kind of all at once or in a short period of time. In addition to the nausea and vomiting associated with the prodromal stage, symptoms can also include lack of appetite, fever, and malaise, um, which often occur kind of like at full force within 6 to 12 hours post-exposure. Symptoms then subside in the latent stage with 24 um, to 36 hours post-exposure. During this time, though, lymph nodes, spleen, and bone marrow all begin to atrophy, and the production of all types of blood cells slow down. Um, and by three to four weeks, the lack of blood platelets becomes noticeable in the individual, and increased susceptibility to infection can occur as the individual just doesn't have enough of the required cells and components to assist their immune system and to fight things off. And so next is the gastrointestinal sickness. And this happens when radiation exposure is between 400 and 300-ish rad, or sorry, 3,000-ish rads. Um, and it's characterized by the usual nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. But it's also accompanied by an imbalance of electrolytes and can lead to severe dehydration. And because of this de dehydration and all of the other symptoms, life-threatening complications complications can also arise. Lastly, cardiovascular or central nervous system sickness is when there's been full body radiation exposure greater than 3,000 rads. Um, and it is the most severe out of the three. And it's um, most often than not going to be fatal. Anxiety, confusion, and loss of consciousness occurs within a few hours. Tremors and convulsions will begin five or six hours post-exposure. And within three days, coma and death are bound to happen. Yeah. So that one's fast. Yeah, that's intense. Quite quick. Holy smokes. Yeah. Um, and so kind of, as I've mentioned, all of these types of sicknesses are when high doses happen over a short period of time. But low doses over prolonged periods of times can result in things such as like the absence of menstruation, decreased fertility in both males and females, a decreased libido in females, surprisingly, anemia, decreased white blood cells, decreased blood platelets, skin redness, and cataracts, to just name a few. Um, why um, is the decrease in libido only in females? I have no idea. How can radiation target specific sex Desires, basically? Yeah. I don't know. Probably should have looked into that. I just saw it, wrote it down. I was like, yep, that makes sense. Radiation. No, that's fair. Well, I've seen that before, but I've just never really questioned why only females. Yeah. And it did specify, too, only females. Like, with the um, decrease in fertility, it specified both male and female. And then afterwards, it was like, oh, nope, libido is just females, though. 
Hmm. So I don't know. If any of our listeners know, please contact us. <laughs> yes, please. I would love to know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and you can also have localized exposure, and this can lead to hair loss and what's known, known as squamous cell carcinoma, and this is basically just a type of skin cancer. But on top of all of these physical symptoms of radiation poisoning, it can also affect, affect your genes and like your genetics by altering them. So if you're like body cells, we'll say, um, if they are affected, this can result in different cancers or as cataracts. And essentially, as your exposure increases, the mutation of your cells also increases. So with more mutation poses the more poses more pros problems or issues um, with cancers. And it also has the potential of being passed down to children. And this may present itself as like genetic deformities um, upon birth. Another uh, ca not cause result, I guess, of poisoning is osteosarcoma. And this can happen years after ingesting radioactive material. Um, they The source I found it from said especially radium salts. I don't know who's ingesting radium salts, but if you are... You may have osteosarcoma. <laughs> it uh, it brings to mind the uh, the radium girls that would paint watches oh. in World War Two. Was it? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was watches, but I know of them. Wasn't it like they yeah, used the to lick their brushes or something like that? Yeah, because radium is like glow in the dark, like without some sort of light source, and to get like the really fine line to draw the all of like the dials, I guess, or all the numbers on the watches, they would lick the paintbrush so it was really fine tip mm -hmm. after dipping it in the paint, and they would do that. And then, obviously, a lot of them in the years mm -hmm. after got, like, osteosarcoma. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, you guys should look into that little side hole, rabbit hole to fall into. Um... But yeah, so if you're undergoing extensive radiation for cancer treatments as well that are targeting specific organs, these organs may damage as well, even though um, it's less likely or not as damaging as ingesting. So like we had mentioned way back at the beginning, our bodies do have the ability to absorb and handle about 200 rads over a short period of time without fatality. But anything over 200, you kind of start to enter um, that dangerous no-go zone. And then 3,000 plus, you're dead, unfortunately. Um, but over prolonged periods of time, our body is actually able to withstand and absorb much more. And it can with tolerate um, thousands of rads when like small areas are affected with small doses. But to kind of provide that overarching summary, the time between exposure and initial vomiting, this can help estimate exposure levels. A dose exposed over longer periods of time will be less harmful than the same dose amount exposed all at once. And full body exposure is more harmful than exposure to a single part of the body. And unfortunately, as of now, there's no treatment that exists to actually repair cells that have been damaged by radiation. 
Um, so it is irreversible once it does happen, but drugs have been approved by the FDA that can remove radioactive elements that may be present within the body prior to causing damage. And so um, there's prophylactic agents, and these are used, like, if you know or think you may face radiation exposure, they're taken prior as a preventative measure. Um, so say you're doing a walk around Chernobyl touristy, I don't think it's open to tourists, but say you were a tourist, you go to Chernobyl, you would pop one of these or however into your system to prevent any possible effect that radiation may have on you. Um, there's also mitigation agents and these are given either during or after an exposure to radiation. They also pose as a possible preventative measure, um, and, or at least they're used to reduce the effects radiation will have on your um, tissues and cells before major symptoms and uh, atrophy or death to cells occur. What's, what uh, is it called when cells die again? Apoptosis is when they kill themselves, right? Sorry. It's totally not related, but I know there's a term for the cell death. Um, necrosis? A necrosis occurs when a cell dies due to lack of blood supply or due to a toxin. So before a necrosis happens, we'll go with that. Um, lastly, there are therapeutic agents, and they are kind of like an after-the-fact sort of thing. So they're given post-exposure to try and treat or help the recovery of radiation poisoning symptoms and to kind of... Um, stop possible effects that may be delayed due to this exposure. Um, due to the Litvinenko case, the CDC actually has provided guidance on how to respond to any possible future Litvinenko-like case that may arise. And they came up with eight major lessons that public health officials and medical authorities can use or follow if any further or future radiological dispersion does happen. Um, first thing to do is identify the poison. That would be handy, knowing what it is. And it's important with radiation poisoning, though, not to exclude... Like, it's important not to exclude radiation poisoning as a possible source of illness when there isn't an obvious diagnosis. So, like, in Litvinenko's case, like, they just thought it was a stomach flu when really should be kind of thinking about the bigger picture, what it could be. Um, next, there's public communication. Um, this was an obstacle the Health Protection Agency, the HPA, faced in the Litvinenko case. Um, they did have difficulties trying to inform the public about this exposure. Uh, since it was a criminal investigation underway, they kind of were, they had a fine line between what they could make public and what they weren't allowed to. But it is important to inform public when any radioactive material is involved, as one would hope. Um, third is international collaborations. So this is when all appropriate health information needed for the public is prepared um, and other collaborators. So like political leaders or whatnot, they are informed about what's going on. Fourth is the identification of potentially contaminated persons, um, which kind of reminds me of 
contact tracing that's been done through COVID-19. Because one of the techniques they were talking about um, is using credit card receipts. So like, say Litvinenko was in that bar and he paid for his tea or he paid for his whatever it was, they would have his credit card on file and then they can kind of backtrack and trace anyone who may have paid at the same time or in and around the same time um, to let them know. Obviously, it's not foolproof. Like one person could be paying for two or three people's meals, so you wouldn't be able to get a hold of them right away, but um, it is at least a start. Um, Next is contamination control, where officials identify the best ways to not only identify the type of radiation, the potential effects, but also how they can control it and prevent further spread. Sixth is medical management, and this is where treating and helping those with life-threatening injuries should almost always take priority over contamination concerns, which I thought was kind of interesting. I would think you'd want to sort out contamination concerns, at least in the sense of it spreading contamination, before trying to help someone who may already be on their deathbed, you know? That's just me. Though. Yeah, and I feel like especially with Litvinenko, I feel like if they had known that it was um, polonium-210 that was poisoning him earlier, would they have, like, isolated him and put him in, like, a hazmat safe Possibly. zone or whatever? But yeah. because he passed away so soon after they found out, they were kind of like, oh. But then did the nurses yeah. and doctors do anything for anyone else who might have come in contact with him? I have no idea. Because that's a thought. I would hope so. Yeah, me too. But if none of them ingested it, I don't think there really would be a need. Yeah, that's true, I guess. Because PO210 does, like, is very, is alpha particles. Like, they give off alpha particles, so it has to be ingested for it to be fatal. So, if his wife had kissed him and there was a transfer of saliva, would she be at risk for radiation poisoning? That is a good question. Maybe. And then would she pass that down to their child, though? Yeah, because say she was breastfeeding. I don't know how old the child was. Yeah, if she was breastfeeding. She definitely wasn't at this time, but say she was. (laughs) (laughs) But what if? What if? Hmm. I don't know if that would be enough to cause radiation poisoning. Yeah. But it could pose as a future risk. Yeah, and I guess Like, for something to happen. If he's been vomiting for 23 days, you're not exactly keen to smooch your husband yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah that would i would not they're on his own for that yeah. one yeah um, questions that's a good question the next lesson has to do with laboratory capacity so obviously it's important to establish a procedure that could be used to perform a large number of tests in a short period of time um and i think with I don't want to say the help, but with COVID-19 happening, I think that's kind of expanded the capacity for our labs to be able to do so many tests rapidly. Um, I don't know if it would be the same, though, because one's viral and one's radiation. But 
lesson eight on their list. Or sorry, lesson seven. And then lastly, lesson eight is to sustain the response, which is to, quote, engage in coordinated pre-planning efforts with radiation control counterparts, end quote. So essentially just trying to be preventative and reduce chances of it happening again, from my understanding. But yeah, there's like a lot to radiation poisoning because there are so many things that give off radiation. Yeah. Um, but I find acute radiation poisoning or syndrome, sickness, whatever you want to call it, the most fascinating because it's over such a small amount of time. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. Yeah. Although I definitely feel like lesson eight should be lesson number one where um, mm-hmm. let's try to make this not happen. <laughs> yeah. So I, I will say I don't know if they've numbered it themselves or if it's just like okay. general lessons. It's like the sources that I were reading, that's they had lessons one through eight and that was lesson eight. Um, okay. It could have been their first thing, but then it was kind of like, oh, we should probably add this to the list. Like, I don't know if that was a common sense thing. And then last minute they added it to the list, but (laughs) yeah, that's fair. But that is all I have on uh, radiation poisoning. Well, thank you. That was very interesting. Thank you. And very fun for a morbid topic. I know a little bit. (laughs) Yes, I agree. It was crazy. Like as you were talking, how many of the symptoms and stuff. And I'm like, he went through every one of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like he, there was another article that I had read that apparently a close friend of his, he had asked them on his deathbed to shave his head because his hair was falling out and it just like hurt while it was falling out. So they took the hair samples like before shaving his head so that they'd have them to test on. But yeah, it's, crazy and i thought it was a really interesting comparison to the doctor said it looked like he was like an acute leukemia patient going through chemo like that should have been their first indicator yeah <laughs> yeah literally yeah. Hmm, this looks like someone who's being poisoned by radiation oh oh maybe Shocker. they are <laughs> he is <laughs> surprise <laughs> it's also kind of very sad that like for a cancer patient you have to choose to give yourself radiation poisoning radiation sickness yeah like that's heartbreaking yeah um, well, okay. Well, thank you guys. That was really interesting. I'm very excited about this episode. Um, our next episode is going to be on forensic engineering and plane crashes. Um, so that'll be very fun. And I do have a joke for you guys. I'm so ready. I love the jokes. Okay. Um, where are the happiest people on earth? Where? At Chernobyl. They are radiating. Oh! <laughs> That's so bad. <laughs> are I they know, still alive there? <laughs> are they? <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes a girl who, like, gives tours of Chernobyl shows up on my TikTok. Have you seen the Netflix? This is, like, unrelated related. But have you seen the Netflix docuseries called Dark Tourist? No. I love it. It's so good. They He doesn't go to Chernobyl, but he goes to, I think it was where, like, I think it's Hiroshima. I don't know. It's somewhere in the vicinity of where one of the bombings happened. And right. they're, like, freaking out because their Geiger or whatever the hell scales are, like, off the charts. And they're like, yeah, oh we're just going to do a tour in here. Like, what the fuck? And no, yeah, and the driver's like, no, everything is fine. They said it's safe here. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's freaking out. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to have to watch that. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. I'll send you the link. 
Okay, and did you know that Chernobyl exploded on my brother's birthday in 1986 or whatever? That's fun. I think your mom yeah. planned that then. Your mom and dad. Probably. Because I was like giving a graduation speech and I was like, things that happened on your birthday. And that was one of them. And they were like, oh, <laughs> thanks. <Whoa>. Downer. <laughs> oh, well. Um, Rebecca, do you want to tell people where they can find us? I would love to. So people can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Or if you go to Twitter at WT Forensics PC, uh, we also update our website with every episode where you find all of our source images and uh, everything we cited. And that's just W. Sorry, what the forensics.ca. Um, or if you want to get in contact to us, uh, tell us how radiation works or you have any comments or anything, you can email us at whattheforensics at gmail.com. Uh, we are most active on Facebook and Instagram, so make sure to yeah. go over there for all of our latest updates. And as of today, we have a thousand and two Facebook followers. <gasps> we hit the thousand like, mark. We hit a thousand. Oh my That's god! So no way! I just saw that while we were recording. I was like, "No way! This is huge!" Oh my god! Oh so yay us! Okay, that's so exciting. Now we got to do a celebration of some sort, a giveaway. I don't know. So stay tuned. Maybe we got something coming up then. Yeah, let us know what you'd like us to do to celebrate reaching a thousand. That's big. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you next time. Bye! Bye! <laughs> Bye. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm -hmm.